So this is episode four of Houseology Voices, a series of conversations with contributors of rave culture. And for episode four, I'm joined with a very, 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 very special, very elusive member of the raving community, raving contribution team. His name is Hot Stepper. He's not just a DJ, he's not just a promoter, he's um, pretty much an all-in-one machine. Um, he's been going for a very long time now, and I very much doubt that you haven't been to a Hot Step event um, around the early noughties, and over the past, best part of like 10, 15 years, he would have um, had some sort of um, contribution, not just here in the inner city of London, but also abroad in places like Napa and so forth. It's Hot Stepper, how are you? I'm good, you know. How so you I'm I'm not too bad. I'm 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 I've had to camp out in the car to try and catch you today because uh, that you're you're that elusive. No, I've just been just you know, it's London <laughs> and you just get caught in traffic and <laughs> getting held up all the time. I'm here, man. Wicked. So um hot stepper, you've you've pretty much um kind of been the first person I saw that really challenged my idea of how much work a person has to put in to this scene. Like you can't just just DJ, you can't just produce, you have to be doing other things, you have to be throwing parties and raves. But um did you you started off on radio, did you? Um I started off I I started off as a promoter um after I left fifth year at secondary school. Okay. And then I did an, an event. My first one, I must have been 15, 16. Um, and then after that, I thought, nah, that's hard work. It just flopped. I had like six people. Serious? Yeah, yeah. That's mad. That was uh, at the Dome in Tuffnell Park. Okay. That was a long time ago. And I was like, yeah, nah, this is long being a promoter. Yeah. Let me become a DJ. So then, yeah, started on Passion FM. Yeah, North is, that, is that a pirate station? Yeah, pirate station, North London. Um, and that was probably, I was about 17, I think. Um, didn't you, I don't think, I was, I was 16 or 17, I went driving then. Um, it was close to just passing my test. Mm-hmm. I used to have to get the night bus to get there. Then I have to get a cab home. And then I felt, you know what, this is long. I need to get my driving license sorted so that I can do more pirates. So yeah, so that's where I started from Passion FM. Um, and then the journey basically started from that, really. Okay. So when you threw your first rave around 15, 16, what was the, what was the sounds? How, how was you going about picking the DJs for that event? Or were they so like back mates then, of yours? Or? So yeah, back then... I was a fan. Obviously, that was part of the garage scene. So I I came into the garage scene kind of as it was like developing into like the good rhymes. So like Creed and that started putting vocal MCs on tracks. Yep. Um, And then you had like all the Agent X stuff, Jameson, um, all the other MC guys or producers. So it's getting not grime and it weren't the kind of like house and garage two step. It was kind of developing. So I was a fan of Heartless Crew and all the other crews I used to listen to them on Mission FM so they were the first person or people I called to DJ what? so you you managed to get like Heartless crew. No, no 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 they were the ones I wanted okay yeah and then when I spoke to them yeah one of them they, they must have said they wanted £150 for all three of them <laughs> and I was like what no way I, I can't afford that that's too much that's pretty cheap by today's rates oh man. yeah that's phenomenally 
ridiculous. But back then, I didn't have a clue about what things costed, yeah. what to even how to promote a rave. And I was like, oh, I can't afford 150. Sorry. But yeah. So I got someone else for 50 quid. Yeah. That might have been a downfall because I didn't really get like bigger names to help get the name out of there. But mm-hmm. it was loads of stuff contributing to But yeah, I was picking just who I liked, okay. who I listened to, who my friends listened to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I kind of learned from that event what not to do. Okay. Can you imagine? Can you? Can you imagine? Can you remember the original lineup of your your first wave? Yeah, I had uh, DJ Freestyle, Carl Reckless M, and a couple of others. I think who are friends of mine. So okay. they were like they were all on Pirate Radio. So that was uh, Mission FM okay. DJs. So they were all from Mission FM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was held at. The dome in Tufnell Park. Okay, is that still there? That's still there, you know. Really? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, you've you're at Pirate Radio now. It's it's getting long, taking the night bus, getting there. But um, it's interesting because you've said twice in this in the short, having going for like five minutes of the interview that things were long. But you've you're still here. You're still doing it. So there's obviously something which kept you going. Yeah, I think just for the love. I, I wouldn't have got on a night bus. I wouldn't have started at the age of 15 if I didn't think from early that I had like a love for music, the scene and what it had to offer, mm-hmm. what I could see in the potential for the scene. So, yeah, when I when I first started The Pirate, I was like, this is exciting. Going into someone's kitchen and <laughs> you're, you're mixing and like you just... Shout out, yeah, this is the this is the number. Text up and then I'll just get like 20 texts. Yeah. Big up Lucy from wherever. Yeah, yeah. Everything. So just the hype of people interacting with me. Um, just literally being able to mix and DJ on a radio was the most amazing thing for me at that age. Yeah. I thought I've actually like, I thought I've made it. I've become part of the scene and this is the start. And that's like, that was me then. It's a proper... It's a proper nice um, freedom to be kind of like on air and playing music, however however you want to play it, whatever tracks you want to play. It's, 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 uh, In a way, yeah. I was kind of told I couldn't go too deep. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so your your station had a, a certain yeah, they wanted sound it, policy. They wanted it more vocally, more... Um, basically, what I kind of liked is what they didn't really want to push at that time. Okay, so and that's what, why what sound was that? It was the kind of more of the newer garage. Mm. So they didn't really want that. That's why I had like a later slot. Okay. Obviously, as all new DJs are, you start the graveyard yeah. shift. But um, I for didn't those, mind. For those that don't know, what's what's the graveyard shift? I would say anything after midnight, really. Yeah. I'd yeah. say midnight. So, yeah, I think I think my first show was 12 to 2. Um, and, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, was, I was trying to play what I liked so he obviously big up Kiri and that from passion and he saw something in me mm-hmm. gave me my first step and uh he kind of gave me a bit of a bit of a like lane to say look stay kind of in this lane with your music mm-hmm. don't cross over too dark okay um but yeah, I did it I did that for over a year I think or maybe more okay but it was going really well yeah so how do you progress from that slot that time to a more of a, a popular time on the station what well, is, I is think your is your sound changing are you putting more different i think within within that station i think you have to 
follow the rules of what they wanted to be played to progress there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't me. So um, I think after a while, I thought I wanted to move on, different opportunity. And obviously, whenever you stay somewhere for so long, you, you know, you, it gets a bit stagnant. The station wasn't stagnant, but I I wanted to do different things. So okay. I think I from there, I think I moved to Extreme FM, mm-hmm. uh, another North London station. Um, and then I was there for about a year or so again, maybe more. And then my host, Cheeky B, yep. who was my MC. Shout out to Cheeky. Big up Cheeky the B. Um, yeah, he then came on my show and we were doing like daytime drive time stuff as well on there. So that was earlier. So you get a different type of listener and uh, more people driving around, which is better. Um, so yeah, that was just literally, you could do what we wanted. So okay. we were allowed to have MC in, could go hard with the instrumentals. Okay. Just, yeah, that was more what I was and what we were as a as a crew back then. Cool. So you using the crew? Uh, we weren't a crew crew, but we were just hot stepper and cheeky B. Yeah. So yeah. I was the DJ, he was the MC. Yeah. And... Uh, that's what we were pushing ourselves out as. Okay, so I mean, for there's a, I mean, the whole scene, the whole generation is completely changed. There's like, there's like a huge gap of information where um, listeners and people who kind of engage in music they don't really understand pirate radio or how it even comes about the organisation. So, for example, you're doing this this drive show on Extreme. What kind of planning are you doing for it, like? You just rocking up, rocking, playing tunes. Are you and Cheeky having a phone call in a week? To um, well, we always used to do like sessions in my house or or friends' places where we'd just get loads of other MCs to come, just make mixtapes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, hand them out. Tapes, them out. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we, I don't know. We never really planned a show. We just literally wanted to go in, play all the latest tracks. Yeah. Um, and then just like be heard. Okay. And that was the same time when we started to start getting bookings at all the little small venues and bars that were in North London and just playing within our local community. Okay. Um, but yeah, there was no plan. It was just rinse out. He would just chat all his lyrics. Yeah. I would try to drop all my tunes. Sick. This was all vinyl, by the way. So I'm having to lug these big case yeah. of tunes everywhere. So it's super organic. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're at this place, this pirate radio station, and you're playing tunes. And have you done a rave since your your first um, rave that didn't go too well at 15? Are you are you doing your um, own events? Or are you just getting booked by mm, other people? No. I, I, you know what? I can't even remember. I think, I think I might have done a few bookings. Yeah. Um, and I, I hadn't done an event yet. Okay. Um, that's probably where the thought and the uh, spark came into my head. It was like, well... I'm not really getting the kind of bookings I wanted, so I'm gonna put on my own party. But I think that came quite a little bit later down because we still did a few more other stations um, before I even did my first event properly. Okay. So you were probably one of the first one of kind of us lot from our underground pirate radio fraternity to make it to commercial radio. And you you went to a station called Choice FM, which is now Capital Extra. Yeah, yeah. Um, how people who are listening don't know how difficult that is to kind of have no real broadcasting history and to get onto a station like like Choice. It's like it was huge at the time. Like, how did you even uh, get to that position? I think it was where 
I've been doing. I did a few more stations after that. So I did Y2K, mm. which previously was Mission FM. Yeah. So same owners. They changed the name. So I did that for quite a while, and then I then moved to Function FM, and then Sweet FM. So Sweet FM, I was then on there Monday to Friday. I think it was on Monday to Thursday, four till six. So that's drive as well. Or two till four. I can't remember one of the two, but I was on basically every day doing that show where I had had certain people listening to me and seeing that I was presenting in a way that was a bit different. I kind of tried to drop out the typical big up the 919 caller mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. of this kind of stuff. So, so yeah, I, I, I kind of had people listening and so big up Master Steps. Um, Shouts to Steps. He um, helped me and obviously a few others who were part of this, the Choice of Him family then were aware of me. I then did some practice show mm-hmm. uh, shows and stuff and then, yeah, that kind of combination where, you know, people put you forward as a suggestion and then obviously you then have to show something that they can see mm-hmm. uh, that must have come across and the rest is like I, I got in there um, I think I was doing the graveyard shift again um, and then yeah progressed a bit better times and stuff throughout the years too humble stepper I mean you say that you piqued people's interest and you got onto the on onto people's radar, but what do you think it was? Would you would you generate in a buzz in your parties and your bookings or was it just purely off pirate um, radio buzz, do you think? You know what? So I first it's so mad. It's just so much to talk about. I know. So I, I actually started a distribution company where okay. I, I used to deliver vinyls for some of the record labels, like DJ Luck, some people I can't say because they were white label bootlegs so I used to deliver them to all the record shops across London everywhere from Croydon to North London like Southgate to Romford all the way to Harrow everywhere Um, then I used to drop off vinyls to like um, CK Flash on Choice I dropped some to to, to Kiss to EZ some of these were garage tunes back then so where people from some of the stations had seen me and I think I handed a couple um I actually so yeah this is even going further back mm-hmm. so I actually did a first my first ever legal thing was a guest mix on Dream Team on the BBC so that was through a friend of mine who I was working with at the time shout out to Spoonie Spoonie Mikey and Timmy um and then I then did a guest mix on CK Flash's show on Choice when it was in Borough so I'd actually handed him some vinyls and uh, he actually saw me in a club and was like, oh yeah, like, step out. I was like, yeah, yeah, come and do a show. So I think I'd been in the mix of people and I'd just been known for doing, obviously my parties, by that time I was doing crazy parties where I was fortunate to get really big numbers and consistent hype and stuff. So that all helped. Mm. Okay, so your parties at the time, are you, uh, what parties are we doing? Are we doing Hey Sexy? Um, yeah, so then... So these are these are names of parties that Stepper used to throw. Yeah. Hey Sexy. Is hey it girls, Sexy. Girls, Girls, Girls. Girls, Girls, Girls. Fragrance. I had some like weekly events that I was doing as well, which was uh, Tribal Life, Razzmatazz. I made up some mad names of raves like fudge puppets. Um, <laughs> that that's yeah. the one, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't help myself. Whenever I used to see that the fly, I was used to crease up. Thinking, yeah. That is the weirdest name, but yeah, people used to go to it. 
and nice. just yeah. And you was one of the first promoters actively putting on so much work for us DJs because I guess what people kind of neglect to um, uh, to remember is that. DJs need an environment to work in. So if there are no promoters, then yeah, I guess we can't actively do what we do. And you were you were actually building the landscape, putting together a whole host of DJs. And some of these DJs we actually didn't really get along with each other as well. But you was able to somehow be that that mediator and put us next to some other people just for the the common the common goal of of pushing forward the scene. Yeah, I think I think that. Music should always be a thing where people come together and just party and whatever, leave all their stuff behind. And I was always trying to put parties on in the best venues I could get, get the nicest people coming and just keep the flow of good parties and the scene going. I mean, I'm just one person. I can only do the events I could do. So if people got inspired or people thought, I don't like that, I'm going to do something different, even that in itself is inspiring someone to, to, to create another lane from what I was doing because I, I only had my, uh, my vision's my vision, isn't it? So I was just trying to put on good parties and I still do now. Mm. I, I still try and put on the best parties I can in the best clubs that are out there if I can get them. Someone got all different rules now. It's all contracted to one promoter <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, like the raves were really good. Um, and those big raves that I was doing were what kind of helped me become kind of like a name amongst the kind of London scene mm. um, from the underground to the kind of commercial yeah. to a point. Um, yeah. It's a pretty vague question, but how difficult was it for you to actually throw a party? So, I mean, a lot of us, we look at Hey, Se- hey Sexy, um, Girls, 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 even Countdown, which was a, a huge event that you held at um, Stratford Rex. Yeah, um, yeah. How difficult was it to actively bring that to fruition? Because, I mean, me as a DJ who played at some of your events, I still try to get my head around the logistics of the the tickets, the promotion, the... I mean, you're not just doing flyers at these times, you're doing mix CDs as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You're putting boards up. So boards are in, in, in the kind of the London underground raven scene, they're actually boards that you would see at at specific, like, traffic lights or, or travel routes promoting the rave and you'd be yeah. behind putting those up and these are all different levels of promotion which they're not really utilised anymore because of the digital age but you're still doing that and the digital side of things so I think back then the first part was of the hardest part I'd say was getting a club that would want to do in the bracket of your urban event how difficult was that? Um, yeah it's difficult because you could only get a portion, a small portion of of the pie, mm-hmm. in regards to what clubs were out there, to who would let you do an R and B event that had a touch of funky house or bashment or whatever, because the club owners classed as high risk. Okay. Because they just didn't want they wanted a kind of low low profile event, and to them, not having our scene in their club was better for them. So the ones that did give it to us. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I say thanks to them. But yeah, I mean, the ones that did it, it was that was the hardest part. So mm. once we got the club and um, they knew exactly what it was going to be, um, they would obviously be supportive. So that that helped. That was the first part. Secondly, was then 
getting a nice lineup of DJs and then getting the flyers designed. The whole thing of Hey Sexy and Girls, Girls, Girls for me was coming up with something catchy. So I created jingles for them too. Mm-hmm. Um, and they helped a lot because that's when I first, first started doing CDs. Um, so when I just got into the scene, CDs weren't really being given out for free. It was more like if you were given a CD, like how much is it? Because there's a lot of people pushing to sell their mixtapes. Mm-hmm. So I'd give them out and then people listen and then I'd people get coming up to me saying, my God, I was in the car and then your <laughs> hey, sexy jingle went off. And yeah. so that all helped for my marketing. Um, yeah, the boards, I didn't really do boards to start with. I did the posters, which was the same size. Yeah, yeah. So they were the paper ones. So I used to just put them on people's cars. Okay, yeah, I remember. So, yeah, I'd, so I'd, I'd <laughs> I used to have a bit of trouble scraping that off yeah, of yeah, my yeah. windscreen when it used to rain, yeah. That was the best. So when it rained, that was my favourite because then I could literally slap it and it kind of gets stuck. <laughs> so when it rained, I would actually put it on the sides <laughs> of the cars and then uh, people couldn't get it off, which was the best part. So they're driving around promoting yeah, your... Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'd never put it on the driver's window side. I'd yeah. put it on the passenger side. <laughs> but yeah, when it wasn't raining, got to go through the window wipe, and I broke so many window wipers over the years, especially Cheeky B. He broke about 10. I got the blame for them. Um, and then, yeah, that was that. What else was we doing? Like, text outs. Yeah. So when people used to come to the raves, um, we'd, like, collect their data, and then we would then text them... If it was like a monthly event, like yeah. a few weeks before saying show this to get in half price. Um, that was before like BBM, before Facebook invites. So before, BBM, the BlackBerry Messenger. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yep. they, were all the, they were just things that I did. I used to even send out letters in the post. Really? I'd get people's addresses, send them a letter with the flyer. Okay. Not a letter, but I send them the yeah, flyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously it cost me money, but I don't know if it worked or not, but it was just stuff that I did. Um what do you think had the the best impact in terms of data? Was it people coming via text or via um, just the the reputation of the rave? I think there was a bit of everything. Mm. Some it was it was a bit of the mystery of because obviously back then there weren't no Instagram, so yeah. a lot of the time people didn't even know what I looked like mm-hmm. or who I was. Mm-hmm. So my CDs kind of helped build a brand without people even knowing who I was. They just knew the name Hot Stepper, so yeah. that helped a little bit in regards to that whole mystery behind it. Um, Texas, probably, I'd say everything. Yeah. I can't really say because I don't know. Mm. But um, I'd say like just that literally word of mouth, like yeah. there's another party going on where, you know, it's in a it's in a nice club and the nicer clubs that I could get, I could only get them on dodgy days, like a Monday or a Sunday. But I would still put a lot of effort into it and people did come out, which was like a nice thing to see from a um if you were to put yourself into the shoes of like a venue owner what do you think was the most um fearful part for them for taking a risk with um, an urban night in and around like the early 2000s because they were selling out they had, they had a large footfall of people do you think it was um the stigma of trouble yeah i, I think any owner of a club or restaurant so for example if it was a restaurant they wouldn't want people coming and causing a scene because then people are like, oh no that place is known for people causing a scene we're not going to go and eat there anymore mm-hmm. same with a nightclub so they didn't want people to come and start a fight and then their regular customers would be like nah this club's known for people fighting so we wouldn't go back there so anyone who's got a business they don't want anything that causes 
bad negativity, people gossiping, talking about their venue in a bad way. So they just didn't want anything that would have going to cause them trouble. Mm -hmm. So in a way, <clears throat> the way around it was they would charge you a high, uh, a more higher, higher fee mm -hmm. to probably pay for more security, um, more barriers, probably have more management in regards to organizing the the staffing of the event to make it run smoother um but yeah we would always be on the bad side of we get we got charged more or we had to kind of take that hit whereas an, another promoter from another scene like a house scene would have just paid maybe nothing okay. or because yeah. they knew they were going to get loads of money in the bar and stuff like that so mm. that, that was the kind of side effects of their cautious behavior mm. So we're at a stage now The everyone knows who Hot Stepper is. You're on Choice FM. Um, it's, you're just a super powerful force. At, the, at that time, Thank I you would... Thank you very much. No, seriously, I, I, I would hazard a guess between yourself and Frisky, you could click your fingers and you were packing out venues kind of thing. And um, that was a very, very, very difficult thing to do because at that time, so many people were raving. I mean... Uh, I kind of recently put on social media that there's there's kind of like a, a big like gap golf in, a, in an active London Raven scene at the moment because it was completely different. You'd have weekends where there'd be about 15, 20 underground urban events every weekend. Yeah, and yeah. then you'd have your other events in like your, your kind of like your ministry of sounds and your, your, your cargoes and XOYs and, and those kind of venues. Yeah, um, yeah. So... It was a very, very difficult thing. You then developed a night called Tribal Life. And Tribal Life has had a big hand in the UK Funky um, uh, development. When did you first hear about UK Funky? Um, or when did you first realise that I, I there, there might be something big here? I think when, when... So Tribal Life was coming off the back of a more soulful tribal house scene. So we, that's when we started it on a Sunday. And then as that was kind of starting, I think Funky came into the limelight or started, was born, I'd say six months to maybe nine months, a year <clears throat> from from that. I, I mean, it's, I can't even, I don't even know what was really the first ever Funky House tune. Mm. I probably have to look back on my catalogue. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Um, want, I don't want to say anything on record and start a that's what I'm saying. start a war on <laughs> online. But, but I yeah. mean, th yeah, that that scene came off of the the back of the whole like that fish go deep curing the cause, yeah. and it went into like the darkness charisma track. So people saw that kind of tribal and kind of I don't know. It's a soulful tribal house, yeah. and then funky was born from that. Similar to how garage was the two step soulful. And then went into the colder grime thing. So yeah. yeah, when Funky was born, um But when did you first realise that you could actually have a weekly night? There was enough um, content from that that sound. Cause I, I like to class it. There was funky, there was UK funky, and then there was like tribal house. And we some of us DJs used to kinda just throw them all in the blender in it in our sets. Yeah, yeah. But I you know, I, I don't even actually know the year. Yeah. I don't know the year, but it kinda just literally became part of what yeah. what it was every week at Tribal Life. Because I could see you was enjoying it because you had a lot of events where 
you had a lot of DJs playing that sound. So you, yeah, you yeah. clearly like that sound. I mean, you, um, along with another 10, 15 DJs and MCs and other promoters were a big part of it. Always, always pushing fresh sounds. Um, you were definitely on the list from the producers. Producers probably had their list. They make it, I'm making a beat and I know <laughs> Funk which is going to play that straight away or Stepper will play it or whatever. So I don't know. It's just, it, 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 I, I can't remember the year to be honest, but it was definitely around the like 07s, 08s, 09s yeah. when Funky was really just out there. Yeah. Um, probably even a bit before that to be yeah. honest. Um, but that was crossing over into my Hey Sexy and Girls, Girls, Girls events, um, going across to Napa, out, all my out of London bookings, Manchester, Birmingham, all the student circuits as well I was doing. Like, I was getting booked mostly for the funky sets mm. back then. Um, and it was just, yeah, it's just wild. Do you remember when you, um, when you first played a track like do you mind or um or party hard did you yeah, ever yeah. think that it would it would be that big because i tried to tell people there were certain tracks even sirens as well yeah, yeah. they were literally played everywhere and this yeah. was before social media i know it was i mean even Danao put something on his instagram um stories about three four five months ago where we was in um i was djing at a club on shaftesbury avenue so this was one of the rare occasions where we could get an event in the West End. So I was playing and he came in and uh, he was doing a PA. So he, I already had my dubs from him. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to play my dub version. Mm -hmm. But then like I'd play African Warrior or I think he had Party Hard and Devil in a Blue Dress. So all them tunes. And then the crowd just went nuts. I think African Warrior got pulled up about eight times. And it, me and him were just looking at each other like, this is nuts. Yeah. Um, but that again, so Danao done well where he took We Belong to the Night. Yeah, yeah. Which was the kind of tribal yep. kind of instrumental. So it was already like a, a yeah. house tribal instrumental. That's what I'm and, saying. And Danao had the, the level of. He added of, in that hard bass. Yeah, a foresight. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was that crossover from where people took the essence mm -hmm. and made funky from it. So he done really well. Um, but yeah, that. That that funky era was just amazing, mm. and it's still going. Like it's there's new promoters and there's DJs across the world still playing funky. <laughs> and I just think that you know that the, the way that it's going, even now, like I've I've started Funky House Brunch. Mm -hmm. I mean. There's so many of these day parties or brunches or all day raves, even night events are still going on. Um, and it's just about embracing the music. Yeah. And as someone that's kind of, you're definitely like a legendary OG promoter. Do you see a shift of people raving more so in the daytime as opposed to night? Is, is this brunch thing, is it more like a thing that's here to stay? Because you see a lot uh, of festivals popping up now and it yeah, feels like, like people are they want to party while the lights are out kind of thing, while the sun's out, as uh, opposed <laughs> It's mad. You know what? Like, I can never say I, I, I'm one of the guys who predicts or sees, but from what I do know is that the raving scene has definitely shifted. Because um, I've, I've been doing raves and I haven't stopped doing raves for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I can tell that 
I'd say about two years ago, the scene changed a bit where it was so hard to get people out to come in the night. And then the whole, you'd see a little brunch here and there. The festival season's gone wild. There's literally a festival on probably every weekend from April till September because that's just how many festivals there are. Um, day events. So, yeah, I mean, I can't see them going at the moment. I think as well where your ravers who are a bit older and have got commitments and they want to be back home by 12, they this daytime things are wicked because mm. they can come out. I went to one which I wasn't promoting, I just went to one and mm. you start at 12 in the afternoon. By five o'clock it's finished, you come out and it's daytime, you're like, oh my God, I felt... Because they were inside a club, they're like, yeah. it was later, but yeah. you've got the whole... Yeah. You can go out for a meal with your mates and then go <laughs> home. But it's mad. Even even the festivals, festivals are wild. It's, it's so good. Could you see yourself doing a festival? I'd like to do one. Mm. There's so many things I still like to do. Um, yeah, everyone said to me to give it a go. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, out of the, the DJing, producing, um, and and promoting, from the outside looking in, it does feel like you have more enjoyment promoting raves and, and, and throwing parties. Why do you think you find that? Because I find it stressful, like throwing parties. The, the anxiety of, is anyone going to turn up or... Um, I think, yeah, over the years, like, I've I've done so many parties where they don't work, yeah. but then I use it as a learning experience. So you just take what you did and see, oh, I can tweak that and do what it is. So it's m more learning, just the same with DJing. So yeah. if you drop a certain tune in front of a certain crowd and it don't work, you know to adapt what you're playing. But uh, with, the, with the raves, I think you get an enjoyment where you've drawn someone out and they've come and... 95% everyone seems to have a good time. You'll never, ever, ever be able to please 100% of people that come out. Yeah. Um, that's just how life is. You'll never please anyone. Even if you're the best DJ, the best chef, the best inspirer, talker, if you're whatever, whatever you're the best at, someone will come and they'll just not have a good time or they'll criticize it and be like, no, 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 I, I didn't like it. I'm not going back. But yeah, I, I think the uh, my main thing is just about putting on good things, what I think is good. Yeah. And the, the people have been coming, which I appreciate. Of course, they've they've been coming for years. And I think, what do you feel like that's the the secret hot stepper ingredient that sets you, obviously, on, <laughs> it's whether or not you want to tell us, but what do you think is a, a main ingredient that you input into your rage? Because you do things like, horns, whistles, and things which aren't necessarily part and parcel to do with the DJs, but you're, I guess you're creating an experience for ravers. Yeah, I think it's nice to create experiences. Um, I think where people pay a certain price to come into an event, um, they don't just expect, well, most people expect some kind of vibe because otherwise they just come in and it's just a room with a DJ and music. Mm. If, you, if, if they're coming and they're expecting some kind of vibe or your party's got something where it's got that whole like, oh, we was lucky enough to get a ticket. So we should then reward them for being one of the people who was able to get a ticket because sometimes you're set by a capacity so you can only fit, for example, 400 people 
or 500 people. So in order to cover your costs as a promoter, you've got to charge a little bit more because the venues are ridiculous higher fee. Your DJs are now even more expensive. So you give a little something back um, and it goes a long way, I think. Um, but yeah, in regards to tricks or secrets or whatever, it's just, I feel that I've just been just grafting. Like yeah. you still, you got to be out there I don't know. There's not much people giving out flyers anymore, but people that do give it out, it's it's about the visual side of your your brand. So mm. sometimes it's good to give a flyer here and there. Um, data is important. Um, yeah, data is key actually. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that. Um, I mean, I was just chatting to another uh, legendary promoter in episode one of this podcast called um, uh, Sting. Uh, so episode two of the podcast, uh, rather, Sting, and he is behind the uh, promotion Telepathy, The Jungle Night. Yeah, yeah. And he used to do, the. he actually used to voice his own jingles. And I, and I think you kind of touched on the jingle aspect being um, something which people remember and they take away with them. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. your one, you had, uh, is it Hyper MC? Yeah, Hyper, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hyper MC from Nasty Crew, um, Graham MC, and he was kind of part of, the the promotional the, the audio kind of jingle yeah, which yeah. used to come along with the the mix CDs that you used to give out yeah, yeah and the mix CDs and the flyers you still do a lot of that yourself why do you feel it's so important to kind of still be out there on the front line even at this stage twenty years down the line because you're the face of your brand um, some people don't care about it at all some people like I, I do I think like if you've got an event or you've got your brand and people associate you with the brand they want to know that, you know, someone's giving you some promotional material or they're personally inviting you to their party because then you become a kind of like a franchise. So if you've just got any old event promoted by any old person, there's you're not part of something. People want to feel like they're part of something. And if you can create what I try to create and hopefully still am still creating, then people kind of feel a little bit more special and they feel like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to that because you know it is got that personal touch um same with the jingles and and the t-shirts that we've got and what i'm doing now with all the brunches like i'm you're gonna see a hey sexy brunch coming back soon oh, sick um that's actually gonna be out and girls 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 hey sexy and girls girls in napa in april may for the timeless weekender um just yeah loads of things which are coming back let's talk about napa because there doesn't seem to be a um, a party island at the moment in the year 2020 for the kind of the youth to flock to. But in the past, I don't know, I'd say 10, 15 years, um, that was Ayanapa. And I think it's, it's always going to have a special place in a lot of ravers' hearts. What made you feel like you was ready to take your promotions, your, your events abroad to... Um, a place which is, well, if you've ever been to Napa, from a DJ and a promoter capacity, there's a very different culture and way in the way you throw your raves. I mean, one of the, the most notable things is that as a DJ, you can't play for every single event out there. That's yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's some people may not be aware of. So some DJs were uh, like contracted to certain brands out there and they kind of, that was more or less them for the season. Yeah. Some brands had sister brands that you can kind of I'd say DJ it was with. more... It was more the venue than the brand. Yes. So, so yeah, yeah. So like if that, that brand was obviously contracted to the venue. Yeah. And then the venues controlled where 
the brands could be. Yeah. Um, not forcefully. They just said, look, if you want to do events and your DJs want to play, they have to play with us. So it kind of helped with the exclusivity of the event. But with Napa, um, I think I went 2005. And then as a raver or as a raver, yeah. I think with Cheeky and my cousin, and um, we just went and just was going wild out there. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, this is a bit of us. And then I think 2007, I went and filmed part of my Inside Out documentary. Yeah, I remember that. I uh, think I still got that actually. The hope so. Yeah, yeah I still got it on the <laughs> the MP4. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then we went and filmed that in 07, um, and I think I just I threw. No, I didn't. Not that year. So, no, I did that year. Sorry, 07, I threw one party just as as a test star in black and white. And um, that went really well. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but that was without letting people know over here in the UK that I was doing something. It was just over there for the people that was over there from London. They're like, yeah, yeah, we know Stepper, we know the brand. So they came. Um, and then from that, um, the owners of ICE said, look, we're going to give you like four dates mm. to start in, in, the, in the peak season okay. for 08. So the owners of ICE are the same owners as Black and White, Black correct? and White okay, cool. and a few other spots. Yep. Um, so then they, they gave me some dates and then I then promoted on the Inside Out documentary and yeah. all the promo material that went out that I'm going to oh, be Oh, so you Napa. used the documentary to promote for the... It was, it was on there that yeah. I'm going to be out there in 08. Okay. And then literally... It was just like, it was just, just crazy. So just you literally had to promote like a year ahead. I didn't have to. I, I didn't know what I was doing oh, okay. in, in regards to how to promote for another country. Mm. So I just thought, let me just stick it on here because it's going to come out on YouTube and social media and stuff about my documentary. So while people are watching documentary, it was just a good avenue to get exposure. But yeah, from that, people were going nuts. People came out. I didn't really know until I'd landed in Napa 08 that how much people were coming to my events and I remember I had black and white the same like Luck and Neat was on the ice and then my queue so DJ Luck and MC Neat are on ice and yeah, then yeah. you're at black and white so wow. ice was like obviously the biggest yeah and that's just club. literally like I don't know like five minutes around the corner isn't it on the strip literally like you just five up. bars from yeah the, yeah so, so literally there's five bars and then you walk up and you bend to the yeah, left yeah. and then there's ice and then so my Night hadn't even started, but the queue was there. And my queue had actually started outside black and white, crossed four or five other bars, and then cut across their queue as well. <laughs> it was mad. And I, I was just so overwhelmed. I was like, this is so nice to see yeah. that like everyone had come. Mm -hmm. And then um, from there, they then said, look, you know, you, you've done really good. Okay. Can you then take over, do some dates at ICE? Yeah. Um, I need to break it down even more because for people... You've never been to Napa. There's obviously there's you got got to have the PRs as well. So the PRs have got to promote yeah, the brand. Yeah. They've got like the T-shirts of your brand as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So luckily, I had a lot of my friends come out. So okay. we we was all wearing. Um, in fact, we were wearing my my Hot Stepper T-shirts, yeah. not the T-shirts that were promoting the event. The Hot Stepper one with the logo with, with the fire around with it. the H. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we kind of had our own. There was like. 10, 15 of us just wearing the H T-shirt. Yeah. So people were like, "Wow, what's that?" Or and then they'd find out. And then they would then see, hey, sexier ice on this date, like tonight. Because mm -hmm. the way they did it, they would be promoting day by day. Yeah. But we, because we're wearing the H t-shirts every day, I think people are like, what's this? Every day we're seeing these people out. And obviously I'd be walking around giving out CDs and I'd take the flyers in my hand and give out on a Monday, say my events this Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So I don't think many people did that. Um, 
a few of the other promoters started to do that as well. Um, so people kind of knew. But I think as well from my prior promotion in the UK, people had kind of set their set hearts on they were going to come to mine on a Wednesday and mm. then whoever else, Cameo was on a Monday mm. and I can't remember the rest. Like, Was there much planning that you had to put in? So was you saying, okay, well... The rave is on this night. I better arrive like two weeks prior or a week beforehand. Or uh, I just came, I think, two days before, <laughs> two or three days. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that, that's the thing, though. When you, when you're on holiday, like you're only on holiday for seven days. Yeah. Or ten days if you're lucky. So, of course. So the thing is, like, you're changeover. Only, yeah, you got changeover. So, like. So the changeover is the, the period at when... Sundays and Wednesdays. Okay, they would leave and come to the island. Yeah, so most people come on a Sunday or a Wednesday. So they've literally come, so their full day will be the Monday or the Thursday. So if you're out on the beach giving out your flyer, saying in two days' time, come here, or in five days' time, come here, more likely they're going to come. Mm. So it's, it's, you got there's no point going there two weeks before because those people are going to be gone. <laughs> so... Yeah, two, 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 three days max yeah. for your event, and it's 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 true because I guess if you're a promoter in in the UK, you'd probably think in those same patterns of I need a two week or a three week run up. Yeah, for an event. obviously over here is different because people live here. Yeah, but when you're on holiday, it's so different. So yeah, over here, I always like to do like an eight week, eight week campaign if it was a big event. These days, some of these younger promoters who have got phenomenal database online on instagram and stuff i've seen them throw events in two days and get a thousand people because they've got the uh they've got the very trendy and they've got the up-and-coming djs who are literally born within a week and they're, they're massive mm. and they, they've got that fresh instant access to the to the new 18 to 21 market yeah i mean I'm going to touch on in a in a minute what you see coming next in regards to like the Raven scene and and the next big Raven experience. But I was looking on Instagram the other day, and there's actually an app now where you can provide a filter if your Raven's dead. <laughs> you could actually filter people into the. I don't know if it's a parody, but it's kind of it's getting to that be. stage where that's that's where we're at, where people are. I mean, Instagram's always been a thing where you kind of you, you sell the, the impossible. So that's basically a new version of the smoke machine back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> when your club was empty, you'd be like to the technician, put the smoke machine on, give me the button. You'd put your hold out for like 10 minutes, be like a fog. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, can, I can imagine that's an app to be yeah, honest. Yeah. That's nuts. So what do you think is coming next in terms of a Raven scene? Or do we need to go back again and re... re uh, I think regenerate garage or garage 2.0 or funky 2.0 or i think everything in life always goes in circles like dependent when it comes back around again it's slightly changed but everything does come in circles like the house scene now the funky and the tribal and that is probably at its biggest it's ever been since like the 05s to 08 era 010 so yeah it's massive right now same with like bashment is massive again R&B will always be massive. Um, Afrobeats is huge. So where all the kind of genres, garage is, is kind of stayed consistent and all of that. Um, so where the ravers are now coming and raving literally from 11, 12 in the afternoon, 
all the way now till five in the morning, your day raves, your brunch raves, they're only going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel that the concepts of them, them events are going to get more extravagant. Um, I think London needs more nightclubs, more, uh, more venues to hold events. Um, the mayor did say that he's trying to push, you know, more clubs to open in the capital. Mm-hmm. That'll be good. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole six nine six thing, where clubs were restricted by music policy. How DJ. much is that a pain in the ass for you? The whole six nine six. Yeah, just trying to do events where as soon as you label you're doing R and B or hip hop or house, they'd be like, nope. Mm. or they'd be like we don't want this selection of DJs or we don't want um, you to operate these hours you have to operate and finish by one Yeah, most people would come out at 11 at night Yeah, minimum I was actually uh, on the board for that to try and get that abolished and we actually did get to a point where we got the 696 form scrapped but what was put in its place is still yet to be decided yeah. so I mean at currently where it stands is that the, the the form is has been kind of got rid of, but they're still trying to yeah, find the people behind it. Is still there, it's still exactly. Checking, so yeah, it's not really. That's its own. So it's still a, a bit of an issue, then, really. I think for for some venues, maybe, yeah, yeah. But um, I just think yeah, London needs to just be a bit more open to going back to the capital of partying, which it is in a way. I think in a way, the restrictions on nighttime raving is forced promoters to adapt so i think that might be a reason why there's so much day events because i suppose the uh people's mentality is a bit different going out in the day they're a bit more chilled they haven't consumed that much alcohol prior you'd have like a little pre-party at home mm-hmm. where you're down a bottle of vodka yeah they wouldn't really do that at like 10 in the morning so <laughs> they're kind of like a bit more mellowed out but um yeah it's it's, it's promising i think 2020 is an amazing year and I can only see good things for the scene. DJs are doing really good things. The commercial and underground radio scene is embracing the UK uh, movement. And like I said, all the genres, Afrobeats is crazily popular. House is back there. Garage is doing what it's doing. The new, the new music is there. Um, it's an exciting time. Sounded real positive. Stepper, thank you very much. We've got the Funky Bunch coming up soon. We've got your event uh, in Napa this year. Yeah, so yeah, I've got my Funky House brunch. Um, Tribal Life is there. We've got Hey Sexy and Girls, Girls, Girls in Napa 2020. Uh, look out for them brunches as well. Um, and yeah, I've got other brands, Drunk in Love, Sexy Love. Um, you'll see a, a little fragrance coming as well. Fragrance. Um, yeah, just... Literally, follow me on Instagram and you'll get all the information and Twitter, it's just uh, DJ Hot Stepper. Brilliant. And I'll put links to all the the socials in regards to DJ Hot Stepper's promotions as well when this podcast drops. Thank you once again, Hot Stepper. Thank you. You are definitely a legend as well, bruv. So (laughs) don't underestimate your uh, influence in all of this. Appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Thanks, bruv.